Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. We are here again. My name is Alan. I'm joined, as always, by Gareth. Monge too, Alan. Monge too. <laughs> yes. Ah, a little clue as to our episode, if you click on this without looking at the title. Uh, yes, Gareth, today I'm going to whisk you back to 1981. You're, mm. you're a small boy. You live in a bed and breakfast <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> you are an only child. Yeah. This is... <laughs> the world is your lobster. In 1981, I was six years old, and yes, I was still an only child in those halcyon days. And, uh, <laughs> and yes, we, my mum and dad ran a, a boarding house, so we had lots of lodgers, lots of miners, smelly miners in the house. So you were obviously used to the rough and tumble of the working class lifestyle, so <laughs> the likes of an only fools and horses must have been uh, <laughs> very relatable. Well, let's, before, let's tell you what, let's tell everybody exactly what we're going to cover. So we, yeah. we are covering Only Fools and Horses today, which is one of the monuments of British sitcom. In fact, it's such a yes. big deal that we've decided we're not going to try and cover all of Only Fools and Horses in one go. Alan, just tell, tell us what we're going to cover today and what we're not going to cover. Okay, so we've split Only Fools and Horses up a bit, and, and today we're dealing with the early years, which we have defined as the granddad years. Mm-hmm. Because, as we will discuss later, uh, Leonard Pierce, who played Granddad, died after series three. So we're going to talk about series one to three. Yes. And we'll touch quickly on the for, uh, the funeral episode in season four, yes. uh, where he actually died. Uh, but yes, we're, we're dealing with the Granddad years, which is basically the first three series. And it's a, it's a good point to stop it, because apart from the changes that came with a change of character, which we will uh, come to... It, this was the years of its finding its feet, and it wasn't immediately successful. Mm. Uh, and and so I think there is a nice gap to be to be made there around series three. Well, let me let me return to the question you asked me, which is about my memories of Only Fools and Horses. And and as I watched, I've watched six episodes, two from each of the first three series this week, and mm-hmm. I didn't remember any of them. So I'm not going to say I never saw them, but I certainly they weren't familiar to me. But I did remember Grandad. If I'm honest, when I think about Only Fools and Horses, I think of Uncle Albert. But I, I, like, Grandad is familiar to me. I do remember him. So I think I must have watched it, but perhaps I was just too young to form those sorts of memories. Well, you know, it's, it's been, you know, repeated ad nauseum sure. over the years as well. But that, that's interesting you mentioned that, because I, this brings up something I wanted to ask you straight away before we got into this. What is Only Fools and Horses to you? What, what do you remember? If someone says Only Fools and Horses, what are those touchstones? Del Boy and Rodney and Uncle Albert, that's, that's, the, that's the cast that come to my mind. That, that mental image that comes into my head, Del Boy's a lot older than he was in these, in these early episodes. Now, obviously, you know, you can do the maths, he's five years older or whatever. But in my memory of Only Fools and Horses, Del Boy's an old man. He's the older brother for sure, but he's, you know, my dad's generation. Whereas in these early episodes, the idea is that, you know, he's still a young Jack the Lad about town. Yeah. Well, I think Only Fools and Horses is, um, has a lot of cultural weight in that everybody knows that three-wheeler van, you know, the mm-hmm. Trotters Independent Traders. You mentioned Boise and Trigger. They're all known characters. I'm not going to say everybody watched Only Fools and Horses, of course. That's a silly thing to say. But everybody knew what Only Fools and Horses was. Everybody yeah. knew those characters, some of the catchphrases. Well, I, I would say this is the British Sitcom History Podcast. Is this the British sitcom? It's certainly a contender. I mean, we, we, we had this conversation when we did Steptoe and Son in the last series. And, you know, mm. I think there are some parallels, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about. But the, the comparison I would make from a cultural point of view is that, like Steptoe, Only Fools and Horses has that, 
that cultural weight that, that transcends the programme. So it's not just, a, oh, did you see the programme last night? Wasn't that joke funny? The, the characters mm. and the situation, everybody knows and, it, you know, everybody has an opinion. Everybody can talk about it. Yeah, there's not many sitcoms that have a West End musical based on them. <laughs> good point. That's a good, uh, that's a good metric. At 20 years after the last episode went out as well, yeah, yeah. and 40 years after the first episode. You just can't get away from the fact that Only Fools and Horses is a British institution. It, it is part of British culture. And that's fascinating. Mm. It, it, even in the world of sitcom, and we've, uh, we've talked about some massive sitcoms previously, Steptoe and Faulty Towers. But I think there's a, good, there's a good comparison. If you look at something like Faulty Towers, or perhaps even Rising Damp, excellent mm. sitcoms, almost universally loved, but not in the same way the, a cultural juggernaut like Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. So why is that? Let's discuss. <laughs> let, let, let's see right. if we can, can set that out. question up nicely. I hope we can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's start at the beginning then, I guess. We have picked a specific episode to look at, yeah. uh, as we usually do, but I think we better get a bit of background first. And we have, of course, talked about John Sullivan before. We talked about John podcast. Sullivan when we when we discussed Dear John in the first series. Now, I don't think anyone would claim that Dear John is uh, more significant than Only Fools and Horses. But nevertheless, we did, we did talk quite a lot about him back in that episode. So uh, we can refer our listeners back to that uh, Dear John episode. But, but let's not just brush across John Sullivan. Just give us a bit of a summary of, of his career pre-Only Fools and Horses. I mean, it's what you want from the writer of Only Fools and Horses. He's a bit of a working class Cockney lad. Um, not hugely academic at school, you know. He's not stupid, but, he, you know, he just did his years, dropped out at 15 to do an apprenticeship or something. Uh, but he did get interested in, in literature and specifically Charles Dickens. And this is important because, obviously, Dickens was writing about working class Londoners. Mm. And, and John Sullivan could relate to it in a way that he hadn't to other literature. You know, his early jobs, like he did work on a market, he worked for a used car salesman and stuff like that. All these things that you can tell are going to inform uh, his writing later on. But he was working in a, a factory or something and he, they, he found out about Johnny Spate, yeah. um, who wrote Till Death is Due Part. This guy's a working class lad who is now earning a good wage writing scripts. And so for John Sullivan, who was just writing for a bit of fun and, and, and writing things, it, it made him go, oh... I can do that. This isn't outside of me. And it's a, it's a classic case of representation, you know, seeing yourself being represented in a sure. certain position yeah. going, oh, I can do that. And it, it seems like a very, a very direct line there. But yeah, and, and, and so basically he started writing stuff and sending it to the BBC. And I'm like, well, you know, that works. I can, I, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously just got rejected time and time again. And so, you know, over the years, I guess he's honing his skills a little bit, but ultimately he's just getting rejected. And so uh, this is the classic story. He decided, you know, I need to get a foot in the door at the BBC. I need to find out how it works so that I can then play the system a bit more. Hmm. So he got a job in the BBC, and the only job he could get as a as a, someone who didn't go to Oxbridge University was in the props department. But it worked. He got into the props department. Uh, he managed to slip a script to Ronnie Barker on the set of Porridge uh, for some sketches and got his first sort of writing gig off that. And the, the sort of famous story about how he got Citizen Smith made 
was he went up to Dennis Main Wilson, who was um, you know head of comedy, mm-hmm. I think that was his title at the time, but certainly a producer. Dennis Main Wilson in a bar at the BBC he went up to him and went, "Oh, all right, mate. Um, I just thought I'd introduce myself. Uh, I'm going to be working with you soon." And Dennis Main Wilson was like, "Oh, I don't even know who this is, but I, you know, be polite." And then realised that it was just this cocky young lad who was like, "Oh yeah, you're going to be working because." Believe me, mate, I've got some great scripts. <laughs> and and it worked. Cause, uh, it, it seems like Dennis Main Wilson liked a bit of a, a an eccentric, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, someone who knew what they wanted and read the script, got Citizen Smith made, basically. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and once he was in, he was in. So Citizen Smith was his first first sitcom. Yeah. And it's a great story. You know, that that is like... Yeah. It, when you know that he went on to do Only Fools and Horses, that's what he's known for. It's like, you can just see Del Boy. If he wanted to be a writer, that's how he'd go and do it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, so so. It, it really fits the narrative. So much so, so that I, I kind of always assumed it wasn't true. But I've, I've heard it so many times from the people who are involved mm. that, you know, I think it's, um, it's basically true. But, you know, Citizen Smith, it ran for a few years. It was a decent success, but it came to an end. And John Sullivan needed a, a new project. He'd worked with Ray Butts, the producer and director, on Citizen Smith. They'd got on really well, so they wanted to do something together again. And they came up with a uh, a pilot called Over the Moon, which was about a football manager, a sort of ineffectual football manager, played by Brian Wilde out of Porridge. Okay, yeah. They, they did a pilot of that, and it never got shown. It didn't come to anything. So he's a bit, like, stuck. He's like, oh, God, I thought I was a writer, and now I can't get a gig. Basically sat down with Ray Butt and they talked about characters, like people they knew when they were young, mm-hmm. like Cockney characters and stuff. And they came up with this idea of the fly pitch man, the guy who's like got a suitcase in the middle of the market, sells some stuff and then he's gone in 20 minutes. Yeah. And they just sort of realized that's a great strong character, a really good central point and could be really funny. And so that was the starting point, really. Uh, and then he, he wrote a script. Yeah. That script went to John Howard Davis. Do you remember where we've come across John Howard Davis before? No, recently? come on, you're going to have to remind me. Remember our quiz episode? I don't remember things. <laughs> John Howard Davis was the director of the first series of Faulty Towers okay. and then was the head of comedy by the time the second series came out. He liked the uh, sort of pilot script for uh, Only Fools and Horses, or Reddies, as it was called at the time. Mm-hmm. He was a bit unsure as to, like, has this got legs? So he got John Sullivan to write, write me a series. Uh, that is why the the show itself didn't have a pilot. They just went to series. Because once he'd got all the scripts in, he was like, yeah, I like this, let's make it. Now, part of the reason for that is John Sullivan was a contracted writer for the BBC. So they were paying him. Yes. So they may as well have him writing something. So <laughs> rather than pitch it as a pilot and then try it. But the, the knock-on effect of that, which we can discuss at some point uh, soon, is that first series of scripts was all written before it was cast. And then your second series was written... For the actors, if I you know see. what I mean. Yes, yes, I understand. Which may just see some slight differences there, that he starts to write to the strengths of your actors mm-hmm. or to, to know you're going to know what they're going to bring to it. As they come in, the characters are going to evolve a bit because of the way they play them. Well, just to, just to give an example, one of, the, one of the series one episodes that I watched was The Russians Are Coming, episode six. And the, mm. the conceit of the, ex- uh, of the episode is that Del Boy's bought a load of lead and it actually turns out to be a nuclear fallout shelter um, mm. to, ready to be constructed. And, you know, this is very 1981. We're all terrified of nuclear holocaust. But, but essentially, the, all, the whole episode, or most of the episode, takes place inside this nuclear bunker. So it's the three characters just interacting. And again, just felt very, again, something you could put on on stage. And you could sort of see other actors portraying those roles, you know, in a, a, a sort of touring theatre company, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
it, they, the characters, you're, you're learning about the characters and they're obviously familiar, but they're not quite fully formed yet. Yes. There's a mix in the first series and in the second series as well. Some episodes that are really plot heavy. Mm. It's really like, oh, here's a great sitcom plot. And then some that are really dialogue heavy and really character driven, mm. which are generally the more interesting ones and, and more funny ones. Mm. You want the, These characters are so well written and so well acted, performed, that you want them to just exist with each other. You just need a little bit of plot to give them a yeah. reason to be together. But perhaps there's a, there's a bit of hindsight at play there in that if you were watching this in 1981, you didn't have that familiarity with the characters, that, mm. that, that, that ready understanding. And so you needed the plot to carry the program. Whereas five, six years in, you know these people and just being around them is good enough. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I think it, it, it speaks somewhat to John Sullivan's writing as well that he was swaying from one thing to the other rather than finding a nice balance mm. or perhaps just committing to one side mm. or the other. Because there are plenty of sitcoms that aren't very good, that are just plot driven. It's just like, oh, today we're trying to put up wallpaper and oh, I've put my foot in the paste bucket. Oh no, the wallpaper's falling down. <laughs> the ladder's broken. It's like, okay. So <laughs> uh, we'll be discussing some of those uh, soon. <laughs> so there are like plot driven comedy nonsense, which does not stand the test of time. It's just, it, it kills half an hour. Yeah. And then you've got character driven stuff where people can identify with the character, can relate to a situation. And definitely John Sullivan has that in his bag. And also he, he's taking inspiration from the likes of Galton Simpson, Johnny Spate, but there's no doubt. I mean, you watched the first episode, the very first episode of Only Fools and Horses. The links to the pilot episode of Steptoe and Son in that are pretty mm. apparent. You know, these yes. two people who are kind of stuck with each other. One of them wants to get away to prove themselves. Mm. The other one, in some ways, wants to encourage his independence, but also wants needs him control. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. There's this control. I, well, I, I, you've touched on it now. Well, let's talk about it. Because there were several times I saw parallels between this, between Del Boy and Rodney and Albert and Harold Steptoe. To the point of the set dressing, even. You know, their flat in Peckham, in Nelson Mandela House. It's not quite <laughs> the scrapyard at uh, uh, Steptoe and Son. <laughs> but there's stuff everywhere. You know, there's the kind of stuff that Del Boy's acquired and he's going to try and shift somewhere. Just the detritus of his trade all over the yeah. flat. And that... that that said Steptoe's Yard to me. It was very similar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was obviously a deliberate choice. Every week, there's different stuff yeah. in the flat. And, and you know, the tab- the kitchen table changes because mm-hmm. the dining table changes because it's like, oh, well, you know, someone wanted to buy it. So I sold it. The, the, the chairs they've got is two different chairs and a settee from different sets, yeah. you know. It's a- I was really impressed with the, the production design, the set dressing. It's easy to just put a flat together. But as you say, there was a lot of detailed thought that had gone into it. And having, you know, certainly in 1981, but usually when I watch a sitcom, I'm not thinking about that sort of thing. But, you know, I'm trying to do a little bit of analysis for the for this show. And, and so I'm, yeah. I'm taking note of those things. Lots of people might not take note of those things, but it, it speaks to the, the quality of the production that the people who are making it care about. Oh, it's certainly, it, it's there, isn't mm. it? Even if you're not consciously mm. taking it in, it, it sets the world, definitely. Definitely. And like, there's other little quirks to the set design, like granddad's always watching two TVs, <laughs> one's in color, one's in black and white. I, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I don't, it, it never comes to anything, but I like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand it. Yeah. 
they they keep the set pretty simple as well. We have that main front room. We see off into the kitchen. We see they go off into a corridor for the bedroom. Mm. We don't actually see those areas very often. Occasionally, right. we do pop into the kitchen or, or a corridor or a bedroom even. That's funny because I was thinking this. As well, I could see, you could see the kitchen in the background of the set. Yeah. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm sure I've seen in that kitchen, one of, uh, you know, back in the day when I used to watch this. But in the episodes I watched, we never went in there. And I wondered if I just, if I just conjured up a kitchen in my head. But I'm glad to hear that's not, I'm not going that mad. <laughs> well, the way these things are filmed on a weekly basis, they put the set up, you, rec- you film on it, and then they take the set down because yeah. the studio is being used for something else. So you don't build the kitchen set unless you're going to be filming there. If you know you've got a scene set in it. And then, like, the corridor to the bedroom, it's, it's a straightforward thing. Four walls, couple of doors. It's, you know, you can knock that up pretty easily. Mm-hmm. But that main set, you know, it's going to be tagged up and ready to go whenever mm. you need it. Can I ask you about the... Because, you know, you talked about the sets and we see the pub as well. And, you know, there are, there are, yeah. we've got these constructed sets. But there's quite a lot of outside broadcasting on the Fools and Horses as well, isn't there? Uh, yeah, it's a fair bit. I, don't, I think it's probably about normal for that era yeah and exterior shoots and it's a nice balance i think there's a couple of episodes that are much more heavily outdoors and i never like that sort of thing Mm. it's because you're not they're not doing it in front of an audience it just doesn't have that feel of a live project where they're rolling with the laughter they're they're playing off the the uh the the audience and especially the likes of a david jason and nicholas lindhurst Mm. like that's their bread and butter that's why they're good at what they do so those pre-filmed bits never quite feel as nice. That's separate from something that's deliberately filmed in that way. You know, The Office, just for example. Yeah. It doesn't have a laugh track. You're not, you're not relying on audience. It's a totally different style. But this does rely on the audience. Mm. And obviously the way they film it, they film all that stuff before and they show it on monitors to the audience. Mm-hmm. So the live audience is reacting to what's happening and then it cuts back to the flat where, yes. you know, oh, we've just come back from Understood. somewhere. So from an audience point of view, they still get the message, but yeah, it's just not got that live touch to it. But, you know, I don't think this doesn't suffer from that. Sometimes you need to get out of the flat and just and do a couple of moments. Let us let me ask you then, we talked a little bit about series one. How was it initially mm-hmm. received? You hinted earlier that it perhaps wasn't the huge success we think straight away. No, it wasn't at all. Um, it was pretty mediocre. Not bad. Not like, oh God, cancel that. But um, it was getting audiences of about 8 million, mm-hmm. roughly, 7 to 8 million. That sounds a lot now, but probably wasn't huge numbers back then. But when there's only three channels, that wasn't big. Mm. Um, and it was it was going out on a Thursday at like 8.30, something like okay. that. It wasn't like a great slot, but it wasn't the numbers they wanted, put it that way. But it wasn't bad enough to, to get it cancelled. And when I've been reading about it, you hear a lot of talk of like, well, you know, yeah, the, produ- the, the the executives, they wanted to get rid of it and all that. But there doesn't seem to be a great deal of evidence of that. Mm. It seemed to be very much like, do you know what? This is okay. We're kind of happy with it. It's not great. Let's do another series. Let's see what happens, you know. But then after the second series, there was a technician strike. And so things were getting repeated and it gained a bit more traction on repeat. And it was just one of those things. It found an audience and, and it just a bit of word of mouth or whatever and who knows why these things take a little bit of time to catch up but in 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 those days there was a little bit more freedom to do that i think we talked about series one so shall we introduce our episode because it's the first episode of series two series two episode one the long legs of the law we'll we'll go into the episode and then we'll we'll branch off and talk about the actors as we as we see fit yeah so yeah talk talk us through the basic plot of this episode and then we'll we'll break it down in a bit more detail Yes, the long legs of law. Having established in the first series that 
uh, Rodney has a bit of a penchant for women in uniform, <laughs> and specifically police uniform. For some reason, that is one of the few things over these first few series that really they stick to and, and <laughs> in terms of ongoing character development. His thing for police women is definitely uh, <laughs> one of the main things. So yes, in The Long Legs of the Law, basically, Rodney goes on a date with a policewoman, uh, causing havoc to uh, mm. the rest of the Trotter family, because, of course, they are on the other side. They are criminals. Yeah. Criminal scum. <laughs> well, now, well, you're laughing about that, but we need to talk about this. Because, <laughs> yes. do you remember when we, when we talked about bread, and we said how they are flagrant benefit cheats, and how that was not acceptable in 2020, but seemed to be all right in the mid-80s? Yeah. This family are criminals. <laughs> They're stealing from people. They're obviously not paying tax. They are criminals. The police are their enemy. How have, how have we made them so sympathetic? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, tell you, I was thinking about um, when we were talking about John Sullivan's first sitcom, Citizen Smith. You know, that was very of its time in the late 70s. That small P politics. You know, those left wing firebrand radicals. 1981, when this was made, I'm guessing it was written a little earlier than that. Isn't this too early for that sort of Thatcherite, rebelling against the state type thing? Is it a continuation of those 70s left-wing politics? Or am I just being reading far too much into that? I don't think you're reading too much into it. I think, I don't know how consciously that's written into it, but it's, you know, you're, if you're a writer, you're rewriting a reflection of the world around you. It's, mm. You know, that's obviously got to play into it. You could also argue that John Sullivan is perhaps writing from more of his youth maybe it is 10 years out of date who knows but you said he was the jack the lad who went up to denise main wilson and chanced his arm and you know that as you said that's yeah. a very del boy attitude he who dares wins he yeah who dares. He certainly had, it did win yeah yeah and it's, it's interesting your main bulk of only fools and horses you know is early is 1981 to 1990 it's it's the thatcher years it's mm-hmm. you know it is yeah and dell is a a, a blood-hungry capitalist who just wants well, to get, let's go make as to much Steptoe, as he can. Because when we talked about Steptoe, and I don't want to turn this into another Steptoe episode, but we, we gave examples of where they were always on the lookout for a pound note, but they never tried to rip anyone off particularly. And there were a couple of examples of where they had tried to get one over on someone and it always backfired on them. And they, you know, whereas Del Boy's entire methodology is getting one over on someone you know he's always trying to mm-hmm. he's always trying to just gouge a little bit more here and there from from the people who are ostensibly his friends and yeah you know it's not just about not paying his vat it's about you know stealing yeah it's an interesting one and i think it gets away with it largely on the fact that he's so charismatic mm. and a, a likable character yeah and obviously that comes down to performance but it's on the page there, I guess there's a certain line. In fact, in this very episode, if we just jump ahead slightly, yeah. we, we go to a scene uh, where they go to Sid's cafe and classic Del Boy, he, he says, oh, I just had a, you know, a cup of tea and a piece of toast. What did you really have? Sausage, bacon, <laughs> double egg, beans and tomatoes. Mushrooms, black pudding. <laughs> And chips. <laughs> it's just every... He's got every little trick in the book. He's trying to get away with not paying for everything on his breakfast. Now, here's the thing, though. That, that's that's little Jack the Lad. He's just trying his arm to get mm-hmm. away with his, with his beans and sausage. But then at the end of the scene, 
Yes. A load of cutlery falls out of his sleeve. So he's not just trying to get a free breakfast. <laughs> he's stealing the cutlery from his mate's cafe. And it's interesting in this specific episode, I think that specific cutlery incident is just over the line. Yes. And I, it's funny where that line is. And obviously that is quite an egregious example of Dell just stealing. We, we don't really see him just nicking stuff. No. You know, everything's off the back of a lorry. Oh, someone get, got this for me. But Yeah, you're right. We don't see it, but it's implied. Like we might see him selling that cutlery out of the suitcase later on, but mm. it's implied that he stole it. But you're right. We don't normally actually see him caught in the act. And I think it would be even be different if if they'd gone to a posh hotel for some reason and he'd nicked a load of cutlery, uh-huh. as opposed to Sid. Sid's cafe. Yeah. Yeah. Sid, who obviously knows him, is one of the boys and, you know, lets him get away with his little Jack the Lad trying it on kind of mm. patter because he's a mate. I, I liked that with that was in this episode because I think it's a good example of just going over the mm-hmm. line. And only just, and it's for a joke, so fine, whatever. It's a bit but of physical comedy. There is there is definitely a line there. Where Dell, we don't see him doing terrible things. Mm. It's all implied. We see him doing dodgy things. But this episode, because we've got the presence of this police woman, these things mm. are drawn into contrast. And it, and again, there's a scene where we, we know that Rodney has a criminal record, as Grandad puts it, for smoking marijuana. Yeah. And Grandad says, you brought a, a slur on this family. That's beyond the pale. Del Boy is committing crimes every single day. That's all right, because they're socially acceptable crimes. I I don't know. Because he got caught, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. We find out later in the series that Grandad was a a gun runner during the Spanish Civil War. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) his moral compass is not not entirely uh, tightly wound up. Uh, Yeah, it's an interesting one. And again, in this episode, that is a very, it's very on the nose example Mm. of them and us. Uh, attitude that they have not just oh we're trying to get one up on the law and we see del boy talking to the police at another occasion and he's like talking to him like he's a mate yeah. he's like oh, all right how, how's how's elaine oh did you get those things i sorted out for you yeah. he's got the cops not on a backhander but you know the police are locals he's and they charming sometimes them. want some black market goods as well you know so they play the game and that's it the police look the other way with del it's the same with walker in dad's army you know, Mannering will tell him off for doing something, but then he's still got his bottle of whiskey mm-hmm. in his gas mask pouch, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So to be so anti-police here, it, it, it is a little bit on the nose. Mm-hmm. But it, it, this is another thing that we see with Rodney a lot. Every time Dell comes like, oh, I've got these things. Rodney's like, they're not nicked, are they? Come on, I'm not doing this if these are hot. It's like, it can't be that how naive. many times? <laughs> yeah, how many times do you have to see that? Obviously, it's all nicked. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, let's take a little, um, let's take a little tangent. We're talking about Del Boy and how charming he is, and obviously, a lot of that right. is about David Jason and the charm that he brings yeah. to the performance let's talk about david jason let's do a bit of a dive on him okay yeah well david jason fascinating story obviously uh, when i really started digging into his um past here it, it is interesting so you know he's born in 1940 uh, mm. and again another working class kind of london lad and when he was at school ended up becoming the class clown you know because he was short and that was his defense mechanism to not get beaten up by the big lads yeah <laughs> uh, got put in a school play Kind of against his wishes, but I think they were just trying to, you know, find some way for him to get his energy out. Yeah. And, you know, caught the bug, you know, got in front of an audience, made them laugh and was like, oh, hello. Uh, so had this kind of ambition to be an actor, but, you know, he's a working class lad in, in the in the 50s. So he, he went and got a trade and he became an electrician because it just wasn't a realistic prospect. Mm-hmm. 
Having said that, his older brother, Arthur, was an actor. So I'm not quite sure what, like if that had an influence on him or not or whatever. Mm. But ultimately, he got his first professional job through his brother because his brother was working professionally and he recommended David for, for a rep job. And so he got a job in rep. He was in his 20s by that point, but that meant he could give up his, his day job as an electrician and, and, and try and pursue the acting a bit more. And so on and so on. Uh, he progressed and he got his big break on, on TV, at least, uh, with Do Not Adjust Your Set. City Editor, yeah, I've got a great story for you. Oh, yes? It's a great story. All right, let's hear it. Once upon a time in the land of the wobbly dum-dum tree, Ricky the gobbly pixie sat beneath the magic oak tree. That's enough! I'm not interested in fairy stories. This is a newspaper. Wasn't that the, the guys who were in the goodies, Tim Brooke Taylor and those people? Uh, no, you're kind of the wrong way around on that one. These was the P- uh, Python guys. Ah, okay. Who weren't working with the goodies. Um, so like John Cleese and Graham Chapman were working with uh, those guys a bit more closely. Mm. But this was... Uh, uh, so the team... It was a sketch show, Do yeah. Not Adjust Your Set. And it was specifically aimed at kids, although it, it drew a, a really adult audience. So I've watched a bit of it. It's It's not... Um, it, it, I mean, it's very Python-esque. Sure. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. It only predates Python by a couple of years, and it, it's written by Michael Palin, Eric Idle, and Terry Jones. Okay. So it's those three, plus David Jason, uh, and, and a female actor called Denise Coffey, who went on to be a pretty sturdy comedy actor. And it sketches with them, and, and uh, it also has the Bonzo Dog Doodah band, as, mm-hmm. uh, as they're like the house band, of course. Uh, obviously neeliness and all that so it is very proto python <laughs> that's interesting so that's in the mid 60s 67 68 okay it's funny because david jason is clearly the best performer in the group mm-hmm. uh, definitely the best kind of comedy actor he really embodies his comedy characters whereas for example terry jones is just going oh i'm, I'm a woman yes <laughs> how can i help you you know uh, but, and like that works in python because it's kind of surreal and stupid <laughs> But the fact that they went off uh, with Cleese and Chapman and, and then Gilliam as well. And Gilliam worked on Do Not Adjust Your Set a little bit as well for some animation. Animation. Stuff. Yeah. Um, they all got together and went off and did Python, obviously. And I, I have heard an interview with David Jason like years later where he definitely, it definitely feels like there's a bit of resentment that he didn't get They to left him behind. Him. Yeah. But he wasn't a writer. Exactly. I think that makes a big difference. He wasn't a writer. But also, he wasn't one of the Oxbridge Club. You know, he sure. wasn't in the Footlights. He wasn't Oxford Oxford Review. Perhaps that has an influence Interesting. on it. But yeah, he was, he was a performer, not a writer. And I think perhaps that's a big part of it. So that made him a known comedy entity, particularly. And that and the 70s are really marked by what I will call physical comedy. Mm-hmm. David Jason is a straight up... What he does is really physical stuff. Yeah. We see a bit of that every now and then in Only Fools and Horses, but it's not built around that. Only Fools and Horses and Del Boy is a real departure for David Jason. And so I looked into what was he doing during the 70s. Well, if it were not for Only Fools and Horses, then I think David Jason, the first line of his CV would be Granville in Open All Hours, surely. Yeah. Well, what's, I'll tell you what's interesting is that both the Granville character and the Del Boy character in my head, are younger than David Jason. So, so I'm doing the maths. If he was mm-hmm. born in 1940, that means he was 41 when Only Fools started. And yeah. I would say the character is supposed to be early 30s. Uh, Del Boy specifically says he's 36, I think, in okay. series one, maybe all right. 35. Well, that's, that's all right. Um, and Granville is supposed to be young as well. Yeah, he's definitely supposed to be younger than he is. But if you if you bear in mind that Open All Hours, the pilot of that was made in 1973. Mm-hmm. 
So he would have been 33. You know, you can pass for younger. He's supposed to be in his sure. 20s. The, ser- the first series was 76. The next series was 1981. The last series they did was 1985. It's just, they open just hours. really dragged it out. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. We'll have to cover Open All Hours in another episode because that's that's a really yeah. interesting structure. I didn't know that. I just think of it as before Ronnie Fools and Horses. I'm clearly wrong. Yeah, they just really dragged it out for whatever reasons. I guess Ronnie Barker was quite busy with stuff. Mm. But yes, definitely Open All Hours was his most well-known thing. But he is not a lead in that. He is the supporting actor mm-hmm. in playing second fiddle to Ronnie Barker, sure. which is a pretty good fiddle to have. But he was friends with Ronnie Barker. He did a sketch show uh, with him called Hark at Barker in 1969. Um, It's kind of a sitcom slash sketch show. He's always playing the same character, but in different situations. It's a a bit of an odd thing. But they became friends off the back of that, and and Ronnie Barker really saw him as a little bit of a protege, I think, Uh and really kind of invested in him in a lot of ways. But there's more to to go on there. So in 1968, so, uh, you know, while David Jason was at this kind of upspring in his career the, the do not just your set thing he came very close to being cast as corporal jones in dad's army oh. which is obviously the clive dunn role which they wanted a they wanted a younger man to be playing it because they needed it to be the slapstick character but this is what i'm talking about that physical comedy was what he was known for yeah and i think that set the scene for the next 10 years really where david jason was the nearly man of comedy right. he was this hot prospect who was never quite there and they they tried. They really tried. He was also apparently quite close to uh, getting some mothers do have them. Okay. Physical comedy. Goodness. He, exactly, yeah. Uh, but they wanted someone with a bit more of a, of a name, I guess. And that was 73. And then David Jason was the lead in a few sitcoms in the 70s that I went and watched. Go on. Uh, not the whole thing, but I've watched some bits and pieces. And physical comedy, I would say, is really the watchword there. So... In 1974, he did a show called The Top Secret Life of Edgar Briggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, spies were, were, were really hot at the time. It's like a spy comedy okay. in which he is a, a secret agent, um, but he's quite fastidious. and It's very Johnny English, actually. I was just going to say, it sounds like a, a, a Bond Mickey take before Johnny English. Yeah, it is very similar to Johnny English in that sense that it's a mix of physical comedy and silly character stuff. It's not quite the same tone, but close enough to be an, e- an easy reference point there. Briggs! Ah! Morning, Commander. What on earth's going on? Well, as you said, this was an urgent meeting. I thought I'd save you a bit of time by meeting you halfway. We can't stand in the middle of a corridor and discuss this. No, I thought of that, Commander. We'll sit. All right, come on, everybody. <laughs> sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit down. Briggs! Now, look here, Commander. <clears throat> I thought I'd save a bit of time if I told you everything that I know so far. Right. No, absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, so, Top Secret Life of Edgar Briggs just didn't didn't do much business. It kind of drifted away. And then they did a, a sitcom called Lucky Fella, mm-hmm. and this one was a bit better than the other things he did. It had a lot more charm to it. A little bit better written. It had a sort of a specific kind of storyline it was going for. And here he is playing that sort of sad sack character that we see in the likes of Open All Hours. And uh, the basic setup for Lucky Fella is he's a, you know, a young man, still lives with his mum and his older brother, but his older brother is a really sexy, cocky guy who gets all the women and he doesn't get any women. And then the whole series is written around, they meet this woman, this young woman, and she fancies the older brother, but the David Jason character fancies her and he's always trying to get a date with her and hilarity ensues. 
and it sort of and it, and it kind of devolves into a sex comedy kind of thing where she she thinks she's pregnant to the older brother and so now they're all conspiring to get her to get the David Jason character to marry her okay. and so that he'll think it's his so they're trying to get a shotgun wedding without him knowing uh, and yeah well it was the 70s but i think that is quite kind of on the nose for a 70s comedy it's like yeah, very much implied yeah, very sexual uh, conduct yeah i won't hide the fact from you that I did use the opportunity of mending your window pane to be near Kath. There you are, see. But nothing could be further from my mind than that, to take advantage of her. You're quite wrong there. I hold your daughter's welfare in the highest possible esteem. And, <laughs> and to me, she's, well, she's just perfect. And nothing could be further couldn't not be further from my mind than I shouldn't do nothing that was not entirely with or without a blemish. <laughs> so I watched a bit of that and it was an odd one, but definitely had a bit more charm to it. It had a bit of a on the buses feel to it. Yes. It, there was some physical comedy in that. I watched the whole bit where he sewed his trousers to the tablecloth and then like hilarity ensued uh, and all that sort of stuff very much a, a physical comedy involvement there and then the last one um that again another attempt to make him a lead actor was called a sharp intake of breath okay this ran for four years this ran for quite a long time but i wasn't familiar with it it doesn't seem to have stood the test of time it, it, so again, it was uh, David Jason as the lead. He's lower middle class worker, you know, office worker, and it's a. This one really reminded me of uh, some mothers do have them. In that, it seemed like they would take him into kind of whatever situation fitted. It, it was nice that he didn't have a fixed job, yeah, uh, because then they could just throw him into different situations. Specifically and, and kind of unusually, he encounters other people every week, different characters. And that's where the title Sharp Intake of Breath comes in. It's like, oh, this week's episode, the car's broken down. He's got to go to the mechanic. And the mechanic's like, oh, <laughs> that's going to cost you, mate. And, and so everything he does, it's like him looking at, oh, modern life. Isn't modern life out to get you kind of thing? Okay. And it's unusual in the fact that he encounters different characters every week. They're played by the same actors. Oh, that's interesting. Like a repertory type thing. Yes. And specifically, those actors are Alan Armstrong. Mm-hmm who tended to play the working class kind of characters, mm -hmm. and Richard Wilson, ah. who would play a doctor or a lawyer or yes. kind of a slightly yeah. posher uh, end. Now, just look straight ahead for me. Yes, look to the left. <laughs> just move your eyes. Leave your face where it is. Again, and not just, I'm saying physical comedy in a kind of perhaps slightly derogatory way. I've mentioned some mothers do have them. Mm -hmm. I, that is not a compliment as a comparison. <laughs> but I will say some of the stuff he's doing is really, really good physical humor. And, and, and like he can take a pratfall. He's really good at all that. Yeah. But also just some really subtle stuff. Like I, I saw just as an example, one thing where he, he had a cigarette lighter in what, to light a, a lady's cigarette. But one of the things where you press the button down, it flicks open. And then he kind of looks away, clamps her cigarette in it and pulls it away. And does all this without looking. It does it all mm -hmm. like little things, but he's just got a real knack for it. You know, That's, he really it, has. This is fascinating, like, Alan, because I had no idea that this was even in his wheelhouse. I mean, let's think of the classic moment of 
uh, Only Fools and Horses, he, he falls through the bar. Sure. That is but it's that's, classic pratfall. That is a classic well, that moment. That is an exception, you, isn't it? Yes, it is. But you don't... That doesn't, to me, say he's been doing physical comedy for 20 years, which which he evidently has. Yeah, it's definitely not what you think of in terms of Del Boy, is it? Yeah, no, no, no. And, and David Jason. But yeah, that's what he did. And he, and he was really good at it. Like, I, I, I'm genuinely really good. What's interesting to me here is that you've listed three sitcoms there that I've never even heard of. And, exactly, and this yeah. is how he spent, you know, this is how he spent the decade before Only Fools and Horses. And I guess when Only Fools and Horses started, there was no reason to believe it would be anything different to those. Just a, you know, a fill-in schedule type of sitcom. Well, those, those like, he was the lead in all of those. Mm. Like they were trying, mm. they were trying to find something for him. Then at the same time, he was doing Open All Hours. Uh, he was in a couple of episodes of Porridge, quite yes, famously I remember him as in Blanco. Yeah. He was also famous for playing older than his years, you know, yeah. in, in that sense. He could play an old man. He was a physical comedian. Yeah. He he worked on the West End as well. He, d- he did an 18-month run in uh, No Sex, Please, We're British. Right. You know, he was he was an actor, but he it seemed at this point, and he's getting in, well into his 30s at that point, had he passed his point where he could be a lead? Is he just going to be a character actor yeah. who can do a good pratfall? Is he going to be... Uh, you know the next Manuel, <laughs> you know sure. Andrew Sachs was never going to be a star. He was a well-known physical comedian who found that role that made him well-known. Sure. I, it feels like the industry knew about David Jason and they just couldn't quite find the place for him. And Only Fools and Horses was not an obvious choice. It was not a natural fit. Like we're talking about, what do you think of as David Jason in 1980? He's a physical comedian. He plays kind of sad, pathetic characters a lot of the time. Mm. That's not Del Boy. And basically, he came in and, and did it and, and won them over. You know, he, he showed that he could do it. So that's an interesting question. We've talked, before, we've talked a lot earlier about how Del Boy is a really charming character. I wonder if David Jason has an element of charm. Because when we look at actors' careers, be it television or film, you can often see, you know, sometimes an actor will have a real bad failure and they're never seen again. It ends their career. Sometimes mm. actors can have several failed projects and yet they bounce back. And I always think that a lot of that is down to, do people like them? Are, are people prepared yeah, to yeah, give them another chance, work with them again? Or do they just think, oh, thank God for that. We don't have to work with that guy anymore. He's not successful. Are we seeing in Del Boy, David Jason's charm? Yeah, I think David Jason certainly comes across whenever you see him as a really nice guy. Mm. He's down to earth. He, he, you know, he, and he's charming. Yeah. <laughs> so Del Boy has that. But that's also a part of the character. You know, obviously that's written into it. But it takes something to sell that. It, it does. It certainly whatever everything you read about Only Fools and Horses that they all had a great time doing it, and they, it was like a family and yeah. all that sort of thing. And I believe that you know there's a certain rose tinted spectacles to all this sort of thing, but I'm sure that's true. And, and certainly it seems like the chemistry between David Jason and Nicholas Hillinghurst was there from day one. Yeah. They got on straight yeah. away, and they became friends, and that's obviously a big part of it. But yeah, so I I, I found David Jason's career pre. Only Fools, a lot more interesting than I expected. And there's a lot more there than I knew of. Like, I hadn't heard of these sitcoms either. Maybe there's a maybe there's another one or two episodes of Forgotten Sitcoms there for you, Alan. Yes. Oh, yeah, YouTube I've been channel. thinking about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so look, shall we return to the episode then? So where were yes. we? we? We know that Rodney's got a date lined up with this female police constable. Grandad and Del are very unhappy about it. Del actually calls him a grass. 
just for going on this date. Nice little yeah. reference, Nicholas Lindhurst. Uh, Rodney says in response, I ain't no Bernie Smalls. I actually Googled yeah, yeah. Ber- uh, Sorry, Bertie Smalls. I Googled that. And he was he was an East End villain who grassed on everyone. He was, he was, the, he was the Britain's first super, super grass, grass, is how, how yeah. it was described. Which at the time was a, a good uh, a good uh, topical reference. <laughs> yeah. I had to Google that as well. I didn't know. <laughs> We we set up that they were at the pub last night and the fight kicked off and the police had to turn up and and it's a weird thing and there's a weird bit here where Del Boy's telling this story of these two guys and it's so drawn out and not funny and he's kind of telling them like no 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 him and uh, him and Monkey Harris they've teamed up together they put in false ceilings or something they just come back from Saudi Arabia they was putting in a false ceiling in a in a dental clinic or something anyway they had a big row didn't they Rodney last night. Should have seen it. You see, Tommy, he reckoned that he'd seen a, a salt beef bar in Jeddah. And Monkey Harris said, no way. Anyway, before we knew where we were, they was off, weren't they? And I don't, I don't know if it was a reference I wasn't getting. It was, certainly wasn't getting any laughs from the audience. It did seem to wander. Yeah, and it's just odd writing. And especially for, like, John Sullivan is pretty tight writing, like, with his sitcom stuff usually. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. He doesn't usually have these moments. So... I don't know. I wanted to point that out because I couldn't figure it out. Okay. <laughs> uh, but then we also set up in this scene that Trigger's dropped off some watchers. Mm-hmm. Rodney has his moment where he's like, oh, they're not nicked, are they? Yes, Rodney, obviously they're nicked. they're nicked. Trigger Everything's is a thief. Nicked. <laughs> <laughs> don't you know this? Yeah. How many times do you have to be told? <laughs> Interestingly, a Trigger, though, uh, Trigger is one of the of the supporting cast of, of, of Only Fools that people are familiar with. Trigger is the main one of the first three series. Mm-hmm. We get a bit of Boise as well. Trigger's in it a few times, and he's a thief. Like, I think in the later series, he's a bit more of an innocent. Um, and he's a, he's a road sweeper who might, you know, might be a go-between. Between, like, oh, so-and-so's got some yeah. gear, do you want it? Yeah. Or, or pass things on. But he's fairly innocent. In these, he's, he's very definitely a thief. He works with <laughs> Monkey Harris, and he goes out and nicks things. <laughs> I won't be getting any more of these for a while. I'm lying low for a spell. We almost got caught the other night. What do you mean you almost got caught? Yeah, by the railway police. See, me and Monkey Harris get this paint from a storage shed down in Clapham Junction. <laughs> you swore on me it wasn't nicked. Bankrupt stock, you said. British Rail, same thing, eh? <laughs> well, we're gonna. We decided just just for the benefit of our listeners, we've decided that we're gonna in this episode we're only gonna focus on the main characters. So you've mentioned Trigger and Boise, and obviously the actors yeah. that play them are much loved. But we're gonna we're not gonna talk about too much about them this time. We'll wait until we cover Only Fools and Horses again. Yes, because otherwise there'd be too much to talk about. Sure. Uh, but yeah, in certainly in terms of those first series, uh, that's what we're getting from Trigger. <laughs> And that's all we have time for this week. But hasn't it been lovely jubbly? So please do come back next time where we will continue looking at our episode and we will delve into the lives and careers of Nicholas Lindhurst and Leonard Pierce. In the meantime, please go and check out our other content or follow us on social media at BritcomPod. And we will see you next time.